And if you're going to stay with us, let's turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Let's get Daniel, Daniel, chapter 9, and verse number 24. Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24. We've been in Daniel, chapter 9, for several weeks, and um, that's not going to change anytime soon. Today, by the grace of God, we'll try to finish verse 24. We'll try. There's a lot in this. We, We begin to talk about it. Let's go ahead and read it to refresh our memories. In verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now that's key. Upon thy people. We're dealing with God's people, the Jews. And upon thy holy city, we're talking about Zion or Jerusalem. And then he says, this is what the plan's all about, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So God's plan includes all the way out until Jesus is seated upon the throne, anointed as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the inaugural day of him taking the seat of his father, David, there. So Daniel's been praying about the 70 years that had just gone by. Now God says, here's the bigger picture. There's 70 weeks. I gave you some verses last time, some explanation between the, or for the day equals year system. So in one week, we have seven days, right? So when we talk about 70 weeks, if we're, if we're just talking 24-hour days, that would be uh, 490 days, right? You just take the 70 weeks times seven, 490 days. But if it is a day equals year system, you have 490 years that are represented in this passage. I gave you some reasons last time as to why we would understand the passage like that. The language of the verse allows that. The word weeks kind of speaks to that. Also, the other passages from Ezekiel, from Numbers, supports that idea. But here's the real kicker. History proves that idea. Because 490 years, days, 24-hour days, did go by and none of these prophecies had been fully fulfilled or even started to be fulfilled for that matter. It took 490 years until, let's say, 483 years to be precise. We're going to talk about that extra seven years that we refer to as the tribulation. 483 years it took for things to be realized. So we know that that's the proper way to understand the passage. Now guys, let me circle back to something that I've already emphasized. The 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, Daniel's people, and upon thy holy city. It's determined upon Jerusalem. The key to understanding prophecy, I can, let me say that a little better. A key to understanding prophecy is understanding how God works with the nation of Israel. If you're, if you're unclear on what God's promises are towards the Jewish nation, then it is going to be incredibly difficult to understand what God's going to do next and to understand prophecy just in general. Come, come to Romans chapter 11. Let me show you how the Apostle Paul brings this point forth. Romans 11 and verse 25. God still has a lot of work left, a lot of work to do with his people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel. Now, I understand that we in the New Testament and the body of Christ, we are a chosen nation. We are a, a, a royal priesthood, the Bible says in First uh, Peter chapter 2. 
So, uh, yes, there is a separate entity known as the body of Christ that God is working with now. The body is of Christ, he says. But there are certain things that are yet to come that, have, that God's not going to do with the body of Christ. He's going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. And one big mistake that is made in many doctrinal, theological, religious circles is to say that the church has taken the place of Israel. And, and, and as soon as you make that mistake, what you then do is go back in the Old Testament. You cannot believe what you read. You can't. You cannot. You have to say, well, if it says Israel, it doesn't mean Israel. It means the church. Some of you, if you have a study Bible, you see at the top how it has some italicized words. Those are just editor notes. Those are publisher notes, little headings that they put at the top to help you understand. There are many of these publishers, when you go back in the Old Testament, the whole chapter, the whole book is about Israel being returned to the land and God dealing with them. And at the top, it'll say the victory of the church. That is not the church. The church, the body of Christ was a mystery. No one in the Old Testament saw that coming. They just didn't see it. So you've got to get Israel right. Now, Romans 11 and verse 25, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. He says, he's talking to saved people, Gentiles that have been saved that are now in a church. He says, guys, don't forget that the blindness that Israel is now experiencing is only a partial blindness. It is a temporary blindness. God has turned his back on them, but only for a while, not utterly. He's not done with them. One day he comes back and, and starts dealing with them. And in verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So God has a plan to restore Israel and save them as a nation. Right now, how does God save a Jew? The gospel of Christ. Just like us. Right now, there's no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yes? So he says, for the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everybody gets saved the same way. When we're talking about how God deals with individuals, you got to have Jesus Christ. When we're talking about Israel as a nation, they also need Jesus Christ for their national redemption. But, but the way he deals with them as a nation in the future, that's different than how he's saving them now. You've got to see that difference. All right, back to Daniel chapter 9. I want to point out there are six different things mentioned in the verse. We're going to look at all six of them, Lord willing, this morning. But notice how the first three parts deal with the sin of Israel. And then the last three parts deal with God's plan to fix that. Okay, so let's look at this. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. So you have transgression, sins, iniquity. You see that? There's your first three parts. And then the second three, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to fulfill everything, and to anoint the most holy, Jesus crowned, King of kings, Lord of lords. You first have to deal with the sin problem before things come right with God. So many people, they try to skip that first part. 
So, okay, yes, well, everybody makes mistakes. But, you know, God, God and I, we, we're good. We got a deal. We've said, no, no, you've got to deal with that sin issue. There needs to be some repentance. There, there needs to be some godly sorrow. Somebody's got to pay for that sin. You've got to stare that sin in the face and say, that's my mistake. And, and now, God, what do you expect from me in order for this to come right? You know what those Israelites did? They complained and said, God's given us this light bread, this manna, and we don't, we're not satisfied with it. And God sent the fiery serpents to bite him. Remember that? How do they fix it? God said to Moses, make that uh, brazen serpent, put it on a pole. And those Israelites had to look at that fiery serpent. They had to deal with the sin. They had to say, yep, we brought this on ourselves. You've got to stare it in the face and say, well, yeah, it was, my, it was our fault. You cannot skip that. So let's, let's walk through this piece by piece to finish the transgression. Transgression is when you cross a line. God, obviously, his commandments, his laws, those are the lines. He draws that line in the proverbial sand and says, now you cross over this line, you've gone too far. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Eat from any tree of the garden freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou mayest, you can't eat it. Right? So he drew the line around that one tree and said, eat all the rest, but just this one. God really stacked the deck in our favor. And then mankind crossed over the line and ate the one thing he wasn't allowed to eat. That's transgression. Right? Now, transgression, sins, and iniquities, they overlap. They're almost synonymous, but if you want to be technical, there are some differences. Transgression, God is simply saying, when he says to finish the transgression, he wants to put a stop to Israel crossing the line. Okay? He's just putting a stop to them crossing over the line. And you'll see by the end of the study today how he stops that. And then to make an end of sins, it's a broader statement. This is not only to stop Israel from the wrong that they're doing. Because even if you stop doing something wrong, that doesn't mean that the sin problem is finished. Let me explain what I mean. If some of you were to go out today and form a little gang and go out and start robbing people and and stealing cars, and I'm not recommending, I'm just saying, hypothetical. <laughs> and, and now you got a little crime syndicate going here, you know, the, the Pachonian crime syndicate. <laughs> okay, now, and then you do that for a couple of years, and you've had your fun, you've spent your money, and then you say, ah, you know, we shouldn't do this anymore, and you stop doing it. Right? You stop doing it for a couple of years. And then the police finally catch up with you and they find the kingpin in, amongst us, and you know, ah, you're the one. They take you all down, take you to court, and the judge says, did you commit those crimes yes but judge we haven't done it in a couple of years what's going to happen are you going to go home are you free no no see you haven't made an end of sins you haven't heard the end of that story yet you say but i stopped doing it that's not enough to save you you got to deal with that that's what i said you got to deal with the sin issue you can't just skip it and brush it under the rug so to make an end of sins sin is breaking the law of god it's a crime against god Right? So it is the same as crossing the line. That is breaking the law. That's why I say there's overlap. But then sin has consequences. The wages of sin is death. And to make an end of sins, you've got to pay for it. All right, so let's, let's hold your place here. Get Isaiah chapter 40. We'll move quickly this morning through a handful of scriptures. Isaiah 40. And this is all part of Israel and God making an end of their sins. Their sins did not get ended, if we can say, at the cross. God tried to bring them back. He, he sent the Messiah to, to establish the kingdom, but they rejected him. 
And as a result, they said, his blood be on us and on our children. God said, all right, I thought you'd been through enough, but evidently you haven't had enough yet. So as a nation, God has to keep giving them Lekarpak's law, one after another. And all through history, the Jews have been persecuted and they've been, people have tried to destroy them. I mean, even in, in, within our generation, some of you have, have lived through this. You've heard it in the news about various wars where their enemies tried to wipe them off the map. Why is that? God is, is punishing them for all these crimes that they've committed against him, specifically his blood, Christ's blood be on us. He said, okay, if you want to be guilty of that blood, then, then you're going to pay for it. So by the time we get to the end of the tribulation time, this is what we would hear. Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. Finally, would you say that today? Would you go to Israel today and go, hey, you guys are done fighting, well done. <laughs> Next thing you know, <laughs> that's, that's what would happen there. Your, it's, cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Not just what you did back then, what you did for my son. You're going to get it twice. You get double. Look at Isaiah chapter 27. In order for them to get restored fully as a nation, they're going to go go through that tribulation time, the Antichrist is going to try to wipe them out, and he will just about do it. The Bible tells us in Zechariah, two-thirds of the Jews in the world are going to die. That's a, that is a, a real attempt at, at extinguishing them. Uh, Isaiah 27 and verse 9. He says, By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And he's talking about people destroying them in the verses preceding. He says, And this is all the fruit... To take away his sin. Now that's strange, isn't it? Who can take away our sins? Behold the Lamb of God that does what? That taketh away the sin of the world. Well then, what does it mean here that by somebody smiting him, verse 7, and God dealing him with roughly, verse 8, how does that take away his sin? Because we're not dealing with the individual sin. We're dealing with the sin of the nation. And as a nation, they got to get punished in this way for their sin to be dealt with properly. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin when he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder and the groves and images shall not stand up and the defense city is wiped out. All of that scoots right over into those end times when the Antichrist is coming at the nation of Israel. All right, come back to the... You can hold Isaiah. We'll be back. Daniel chapter 9. Let's take a peek here at the next thing to make an end of sins. And then he says, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. So transgression, you've stepped over the line. Sin is the transgression of the law. You've broken a law, and now that's a crime against God. What is iniquity? I always try to think of it like this. It's when things are out of balance. Inequity. All right, if it was equal, God said, don't do this, so you did not do it. That's equal. But if he says, don't do this, and you did it, that is in unequal. It's inequity. So now you've gone against the law of God. That could go either way. Maybe God said, do this, you didn't do it. So it can be a sin of commission, a sin of omission. Either way, it is iniquity. Now, reconciliation needs to be made. 
the two sides are, are fighting. They are enemies. There is enmity, hatred between the two sides. The Bible says, when we were yet enemies, then Christ died for us. All right? So be, be something has come between us and God, and, and something must be done to remove the barrier and allow God and his enemy, in this case, the nation of Israel, to come back and, and to be one again. So Isaiah chapter 59 Isaiah chapter 59. God, now, as you find it, let me remind you, God is showing Daniel what must be done to get Israel right with God completely. Those 70 years in Babylon were not enough. More has to be done. 490-year plan to get them right with God. Uh, Isaiah 59 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. Praise God. Amen. Don't you know that to be true in your life? Amen. Verse 2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Something's come between you and God. There's nothing wrong with God. His hand, his ear, everything on God's side works just fine. The problem is 110% on our side. Now, if you just read this verse practically, this passage, you can put yourself in there very easily, couldn't you? Right? I mean, that's us. That's true of us. On an individual basis, you're reading about our situation. But the, when Isaiah wrote this, when God gave this to him, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. Israel's iniquities had separated between them and their God. Now, verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. If you go through and read that, that is Romans 3. Paul quotes that whole thing in Romans 3, talking about how sinful and messed up people are. But in this passage, he's talking about the nation of Israel. Now, just for the sake of time, I considered reading the whole chapter, but we don't have time for that. Come to verse 16. Remember that God here is making reconciliation for iniquity. Verse 16, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Well, think about that. God looked around the nation and said, is there anybody I can use that would, that would be powerful and strong enough, upright enough to save the nation? He looked all through and said, not one. And he, he wonders, man, really? Not one? Not one? And then he said, there was no intercessor. There's not one person praying for him? Not one? And God said, all right. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. And his righteousness, it sustained him. Now, when you read that, if you're back in Isaiah's day, you would read that. You wouldn't know that that's Christ. But that's Christ. Christ is God's right hand. That's his arm. The arm of his strength. Christ is God's righteousness. That's, it's a prophecy about Jesus. Verse 17, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate. And an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Look at that. That's spiritual armor. Jesus put it on just like we're supposed to put it on. Verse 18. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries. Recompense to his enemies. And uh, to the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west. If you, you ever want to know about politics in the Bible, there it is. The west is going to get it. That's... That's Europe, that's America. 
I'm dead serious. That's what that's a, a reference to. They shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. There's the east. There's China. There's, there's Japan. There's that far east there, India and so forth. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. So when they try to attack Israel, God will divinely protect them. Verse 20, the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Do you remember where you just read that this morning? That was Rome, that's Romans 11, verse 26. The Deliverer shall come out of Zion. Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forever. He says, after I get done recompensing, paying you back for all the bad deeds, this is where you're going to end up fixed. You're going to be in perfect standing with me. The law is going to be in your mouth and in your heart, and we're going to be right. We're going to be back together. You might remember this from reading the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 1, God tells the prophet, go marry a prostitute. He marries Gomer. Gomer, unfaithful to him, as you might expect. Chapter 2, there's a bill of divorcement given. God got a divorce. God is divorced right now. He divorced the nation of Israel. He had sufficient grounds for divorce because they cheated on him. With every single God that came down the path, they cheated on him. So he gave him a bill of divorcement. But God, faithful to his word, he has put her away, but he is one day going to remarry her. Bring her back and give her, he's going to repropose. <laughs> Read it in Hosea 2. He gives her a lecker proposal and says, this, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness. In this, and he gives a long list. Just like we give vows, we exchange vows, God gave vows. And said, this is how it's going to be from here on out. And he, he brings them back and remarries them. All right, so that's God's plan. First, they have to get punished, and then they can be reconciled. Come back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. What else do we have to deal with in this verse? He says, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. All right, so how do we fix this nation in a permanent manner? Because there have been many times in Israel's history that they had a temporary revival and things got right. But how do you get everlasting righteousness in the nation? Well, several things that come into this. Let's come back to Isaiah chapter 11. This will come as no surprise to you. Isaiah 11. If God says... I, need to, I want to bring in everlasting righteousness. You can't do that without the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not telling Israel, shame on you, do better. Are you hearing this? In order to bring in everlasting righteousness, God doesn't hand you the rule book again and say, try harder to keep this. It won't work. You can turn over the new leaf, but I promise you'll step on that leaf the, the, the mud will cover that leaf. Somehow that leaf is going to get dirty again. This isn't a new leaf. You need to be a new you, a new creature, born again. So everlasting righteousness is not you making up for your past transgressions. It is you accepting God's ultimate payment for those transgressions. Uh, Isaiah 11, and look at verse number 5. 
uh, four, four, sorry, let's start at four. Now he's talking about Jesus, verses one to three in verse four, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. There's your second coming. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And then it goes on and describes the kingdom age when Jesus will come and nature is in perfect peace and harmony and so forth. Do you see righteousness though? Jesus is, is covered in it. He is executing righteousness, making sure that things are done right. So you have to have him, but get to Isaiah chapter 32. You'll see here the... I, I, I want to share this verse with you because it shows the, the depth how important it is to have this righteousness. Isaiah 32, again, for the sake of time, uh, we, we just don't have time to read the whole passage, but verse 17, he says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Now, again, you just grab that verse, take it out of its context. Isn't that true of you? When you got saved, he washed away your sins, and the work of righteousness was peace. Now you have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. And there's quietness in your soul. There's an assurance. There is an eternal security. There's an assurance that lasts forever. Do you see that? That's the effect of God's righteousness being imputed or charged to you. That's why it's so important. But you're not reading about you in this verse. If you just take that verse out and move it over to the book of Romans, it would work great. But within the passage, you're talking about the nation of Israel. So when Jesus comes back and establishes himself as king and righteousness is is, uh, enforced, verse 18, and my people shall dwell in in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings, and in a quiet, I'm sorry, and in quiet resting places, and so forth. So they have divine protection. Righteousness is meant to bring peace. By the way, just so that you know, that's the order always. You never have peace without righteousness. Follow that in the Bible. Anytime you see peace, look for the righteousness before that. Always, always. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. What does that name mean? King of righteousness. But he was the king of Salem. You know what that means? king of peace he's first and you read it in hebrew 7 first it's king of righteousness then king righteousness always precedes peace you cannot there's no peace to the wicked saith my god why there's no righteousness you gotta deal with the sin problem first then you get peace all right jeremiah chapter 31 jeremiah chapter 31 Jeremiah 31, let's get verse 34. Jeremiah 31 and verse, what did I tell I'm so sorry. Got to slow down a bit here. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Let's do it that way. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Now throughout the chapter, he's been talking about what we know as the tribulation time, those seven years of the Antichrist running things. In verse 31, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of who? Israel. Israel. And with the house of who? That is not the church. It's not the body of Christ. How do you know? They're spelled different. (laughs) It's just, this isn't difficult. They're just different. God knows how to spell church. (laughs) 
He, he doesn't spell it I-S-R-A. Yeah, it's, it's different. Now, you can read about this covenant over in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews tells us how, how, this, how this covenant uh, is, is in effect. It is something that we are looking forward to in the New Testament. But right now, the covenant that we have, we are in a new covenant. This is true. We are no longer looking for forgiveness through the blood of a bull or a goat or a, or a lamb or a sheep. We have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's a new covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood that is shed for the remission of sins. That is a new covenant. But it's not this covenant. This is a new covenant with the house of Israel. And unlike the old one that was based on 613 commandments, precepts, statutes, judgments, and laws, this one is based on what you do with Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 32, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. That's after the tribulation time. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people reconciled. But, but God, in order to fix them properly, you can't just fix them from the outside. You can't put the law in their hands. You have to put it in their hearts. Now, on an individual basis, this is true for us because when you get saved, the Spirit of God comes in and starts to work in the heart. He cries out from the heart, Abba, Father. There's, on an individual basis, this is happening for us. But the deal is one day the whole nation of Israel gets this at once. Verse 34 and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right, now, that last part of that verse, is that true of us? Has God forgiven our sin and He doesn't bring it up anymore? Yeah, if you're saved, if you've been born again, that's true. But the first half of the verse, is that true for us? Do, do, can we sit back now and stop telling people about Jesus because everyone knows the Lord? Give me a break, man. <laughs> Give me a break. D Dr. Ruckman used to say, go kid your grandmother, don't kid me. I don't know what he had against his grandmother. but He, he said, go kid your grandmother. <laughs> There's no way that would apply right now. Absolutely no way. Not everybody knows the Lord. But when Jesus comes back, after having fought the battle of Armageddon and is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, well, then you don't need to go around with gospel tracks. <laughs> you can just say, there he is. I mean, th there he is. We don't even walk by faith at this point. There he is. <laughs> right? Done. Done. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. So how does God bring in everlasting righteousness? Ezekiel chapter 36. To bring in everlasting righteousness, God has to come in and fix the heart. Now, that's true for us as individuals, but this morning we're studying the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36, let's get verse 24. Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. The prophet says here, God speaking through him, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. That's not happened yet. 
Not all the Jews live in Israel, but one day they will. One day they will. Verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Now, don't get all excited about claim to it. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say anything about claim. He didn't say anything about do it. <laughs> There's nothing in there. You, somebody says sprinkle, and everybody gets a woo-hoo, baptism. <laughs> nothing about baptism. We could spend some time on that, but let me just, be, I just wanted to bring it out and point it out. It's not a baptism. It, it's, it's a ritual cleansing. It has to do with Jewish, Jewish stuff from the Old Testament. But he says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Listen to this, the whole nation gets born again. Now, ready to go deep? Want to go deep? Jesus says to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he says, except you're born of water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't see it, you can't enter it. Being born of water is your physical birth from your mother. Being born of the spirit is to be born again. Then Jesus is talking to how many people? He's talking to one man, Nicodemus. Watch this. In John 3, verse 7, he says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. He's talking to one man, but he says ye. He goes from, from ye to, to yalla. Just like that one verse. And a lot of the new versions mess that up. They take the, the yalla out and put a ye in there. And you've messed it up. It's not just that Nicodemus needs it. The whole nation needs it because that nation cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. And this is where they get born again when Jesus shows up. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleannesses and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. Now, you, you see, this is going to be realized in that millennial time. This is where people say, oh, no, no, God's done with Israel. This is talking about us. This is the church. If you say that, watch what happens. As soon as you say, well, that's us, then, then it's a promise for prosperity. God's going to put you in, in what land? He says, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put you in, in the land. What land? People say, well, whatever land I want. And make my corn flourish. You see, how, you see how you get into false doctrine real fast when you do that? Verse, now, just come down to verse 33. Thus saith the Lord God, in that day that I, have, uh, that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. God resets it. Puts it back to paradise. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. So many times you can see this throughout, throughout uh, the prophets. All right, come back to Daniel 9. How does he bring in everlasting righteousness? Well, Jesus has to sit upon the throne, but the entire nation now gets fixed, not just with new laws in their hands, but a new law in their heart, the Holy Spirit residing within. 
the next thing in the list, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy. This is the vision and the prophecy that pertains to the 70 weeks that he's talking about. It's going to take 490 years for everything dealing with the nation of Israel, coming right with God, it's going to take 490 years for that to happen. Now, in the, in the passage, 483 years, that goes from the time that Nehemiah begins to rebuild the temple, or uh, the city rather, up until Jesus being crucified. 483 years. Then there's a long break. We call it the time of the Gentiles. Remember this in Romans 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. In Luke 21, Jesus said, I'm not coming back till the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. So you have the time of Israel being dealt with, and then there's a break. After Jesus is crucified, they say, away with him. God says, okay, hit the pause button. And between year 483, you got one, one more week, seven more years, and that's left out in the future. All right, so I'm just giving you the why, why we don't see 490 consecutive years. It was because when Jesus showed up, if the Jews would have received him, then we, it would have all been together because they rejected him. It's a different story. Now, the vision and prophecy. A vision is when God shows you something through perhaps a dream. It's a, something you've pictured in your mind. God, God gave you that picture in your mind. That's a vision. A prophecy is when God simply tells you what's going to happen. So you don't have the picture in your mind. The, the two are very similar, but that's a vision and a prophecy. Uh, somebody's getting a call. <laughs> should we? Should we? No. Okay. I th- you know, you never know when another vision or prophecy is coming through. <laughs> in the time of the tribulation, and just again, we're going quickly, but Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, it says that in that tribulation time... <laughs> <laughs> She's in the bag? (laughs) In the tribulation time, it says that uh, young men, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will have vision, those type of things. In the tribulation, that's still happening. God is still showing special things to various people to help the, the, the Jewish nation get through that difficult time. But after you come to the end of the tribulation, it's all sealed up. It's done. It's finished. It's been fulfilled. Anybody that steps up after that and says, I have a, a word from the Lord. Guys, the Lord is sitting, seat, sit, seated. I couldn't figure out if I wanted to go sitting or seated. He is sitting, seated on the throne of David. If anybody wants to know what the Lord has to say, you just go ask him. He doesn't need to send out a representative to say, thus saith the Lord, and then you have to accept it by faith. That's not how it works. I come to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. And look what happens in verse 2. All right, there's a, a fountain opened in verse 1. That fountain is God uh, offering that righteousness that we've been talking about. Chapter 13 and verse 2, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. The prophets are gone. That's false prophets and any prophet. 
Watch what happens in verse 3. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, any, then his father and his mother that beget him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive, trying to look like the prophets of old. But he shall say, I'm no prophet. I'm an husbandman. He, he just he picks fruit out of the field, puts it in a basket. That's all he is. I'm an husbandman for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. I'm just a farmer. That's all I am. Not a preacher. So once we get to the end of those 490 years, Jesus has come back. We don't need prophecy anymore. It's been fulfilled as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. Of course, there's still other things that will be fulfilled after that, but not pertaining to Israel coming right with God. It will have been complete by that point. One last thing we'll take a look at. Back in Daniel 9, we'll wrap it up here. The last thing in the list is to anoint the most holy. All right, so God has to fulfill the scriptures. Bring in everlasting righteousness, and then anoint the most holy. Now, Jesus gets anointed three times. You can read three different times that he is anointed. Once he's anointed at the beginning of his ministry. Yeah? Now, now listen, Jesus was the Christ when he came into the world. The word Messiah, the word Christ means the anointed one. But be careful here. Some people say that Jesus was only a man until his baptism when the Holy Spirit came down. Then he became the Messiah because then he was anointed. The day he was born, remember what the angel said unto the shepherd? He said, praise the Lord, glory to God in the highest because Christ the Savior is born unto you. Christ is already there on day one of his physical existence in this world. When Jesus got baptized, the Bible says he was an, he, the Holy Spirit came down. The Bible says in Acts 10, he was anointed with the Holy Ghost. This is true. In Isaiah 61, there's a prophecy. Jesus read it. He stood up in the synagogue right after his baptism. He opened to Isaiah 61. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me and hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the poor and so forth. So he was anointed, yes, that was the power he needed to go out and, and perform the ministry that God had given him. That was the first anointing. The second anointing, after the resurrection, he goes back to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. The Bible says he was anointed with the oil of gladness because he hated iniquity and loved righteousness. And that started his priesthood up in heaven. So he's anointed for his prophethood. He's anointed for his, his priesthood that's going on now. And then he's going to be anointed again when he comes back. Look at Daniel 7. This is the anointing of the most holy that still needs to take place. Daniel 7, verse 14. We're reading about the Son of Man that comes to the Ancient of Days. And in verse 14, there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus sits upon the throne there, God the Father anoints him and inaugurates him as king. Uh, come to Psalm chapter 132. Psalm 132, verse 10. The whole chapter speaks to this, but beginning at verse 10, 
Psalm 132, verse 10, For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. That's talking about Jesus Christ. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon the throne forevermore. Now David's boys were supposed to sit on the throne generation after generation. They weren't all obedient. So God, God eventually stepped in and put a stop to that and said, no, no, no more until we get the right one coming from David. So he put a stop to that temporarily, and then Jesus will be the ultimate fulfillment of this. Verse 13, for the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priest with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. Then will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. So he says, I, I've got a plan where Jesus is going to shine. It's when he sits on the throne of his father, David. So one last place I'm going to take you, and we're, we'll finish. 2 Samuel chapter 5. So as we were reading in Daniel 9, when he says the last thing on that list, to anoint the most holy, that's not his baptism. That has to do with him sitting, sitting on that throne, ruling. Now, how many of you remember this? When David first got anointed, 1 Samuel 16, Saul has been rejected by the Lord. Remember that? And David sends Samuel to go find the next king. And David got anointed. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit came upon him. He got anointed, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. That speaks to Jesus and his earthly ministry. But watch what happens here, 2 Samuel 5 and verse 3. This is after Saul is dead. David has already taken over Judah. Now he's going to take over all of Israel. Verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. He got anointed by the Spirit. Then there's a gap of time where he gets heavily persecuted. And then he gets anointed as he sits upon the throne as the king. And there's your picture of Jesus. Anointed by the Spirit, then a time of persecution, and then he sits upon the throne and he's anointed. That's when it's all fulfilled. That's what we're trying to get to. That's the day we're looking forward to. Amen. We're looking forward to that day. All right, let's all stand. Let's all stand. All right, Father, thank you for allowing us to cover quite a bit of Scripture this morning. And Lord, I know that we've read a lot, looked at a lot, a lot to take in, to marinate in. Father, thank you so much that this plan of yours to make people right. I know we've been reading about Israel, but Father, you've done it for us. You've brought that righteousness into our hearts, into our lives. You've made us right in your sight. Lord, thank you for allowing Jesus to sit upon the throne of our hearts. Please bless our service to come.